With so many different perspectives on race in our country these days, what would it be like to take a look at the issue from both sides, from a white perspective and a black perspective? Well, I'm going to ask one person that question today, my friend Drew Dorsey. Drew grew up in a biracial home in a predominantly white area of the country. And I'm going to ask him his perspective on what's going on in our world today. This is Real with Reed, a safe, honest, constructive place to have conversations about faith. And episode three starts right now. Hey, Drew, uh, thanks for coming on to the podcast uh, today, and I'm excited to hear your story and and have a, a real dialogue about uh, what's happening. I um, uh, Drew and I have known each other for uh, a number of years. Drew, why don't you quickly give everybody just a little background story of how we know each other, and then just a little bit of background story about you. Yeah. No, thanks so much for having me, Reed. Uh, you know, it's a pleasure to be here. I so I know Reed because Taylor and I, his uh, his son, I don't know, probably like age of ten or something, fifth grade, uh, played hoops together. And so through basketball, I was introduced to the Robinette family, um, and then uh, just shy of high school, I think Taylor went to McDonough. I went to public school, and so our communication channel uh, kind of ceased to exist, but. A few years later, when I started dating my soon-to-be wife, she had went to Crossroads. Obviously, we best friend. Uh, I guess four, three or four years later, Reed was uh, was marrying me. So, not marrying me. He was conducting the marriage. Conducting the ceremony. Yeah, I think that. But, thank you for that clarification. Yeah, that's right. So, so yeah, that's how I know Reed and his family. And uh, I guess as an informal introduction to who I am. So, as Reed mentioned, my name's Drew. I you know grew up in Westminster. Um, I'm, 27. I have a, a wife and two awesome kids. Um, you know, relevant to today's conversation, I'm, I'm biracial, so my mom's white, my dad's black, and uh, I'm, I'm in the finance world and uh, still a Carroll County resident. And I like sports. <laughs> That's right. We have that in common for sure. And, and so, Drew, let's pick up uh, on that. That um, you were from a biracial family and you grew up in an area where where we're from that's not extremely diverse um mm-hmm. so how was that growing up how did that shape um your picture of you and and even your faith journey a little bit yeah yeah it's a great question so it's, it's funny because you know by the time i was probably in middle school I, I just had a hard time of really understanding like where i actually belonged because, you know, I'm sure this isn't just in Westminster, but, you know, Carroll County, as you mentioned, is not terribly diverse. And so I felt like often, you know, I wasn't black enough to be, you know, work well with the all black kids. And, you know, as far as with the white kids, I was the black kid that just wanted to act white and dress white and be white. And so, you know, I would never articulate this at the time, but it really created kind of like an inner tension for, um, you know, who am I? How do I want to act? Like, which hat do I want to wear today so I can fit in? 
And I kind of quickly, you know, again, driven by insecurity, but I quickly developed the ability to kind of just fit in whatever scene I needed to. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it sounds like that's a cool trick. But again, when the underlying issue is insecurity, it's actually exhausting because mm-hmm. you never feel like you're quite enough in either group. Um, and I probably didn't fully appreciate that, or at least I couldn't articulate that until, you know, here I am today as an adult that's kind of had some time to wrestle with it. Um, and, you know, you mentioned faith and that's certainly played a role in that. And, you know, who I am today, it's, although it's not a uh, soft puzzle in the sense that I don't have to try anymore, but I really tried my best to know that my identity and who I am or who I'm not isn't defined by anything other than, than who God says I am. And that's his chosen son that has a life that's covered by grace and I can never mess that up. Mm. Um, and so that's a very hard thing to live out day to day, but that's kind of the reminder I have to give myself. Um, and it's still relevant. I mean, I work in finance and I'm in a very, very predominantly white environment. And so, you know, there's even times where I feel insecurity going into a, maybe a, a meeting with the company because across the table from me is four or five middle-aged white guys. And the assumption is what kind of hoops do I have to jump through or how much extra effort do I have to give just to show I deserve a seat at the table. Hmm. Um, so it, it's a lingering thing, but like I said, my faith certainly helps me try to stay solidified in, in the truth. Yeah. And uh, gosh, thanks for sharing that. I, I feel like that's a uh, holy ground uh, <laughs> that you let us in on. And, and I, and I know that, uh, that your, your mom and dad, just cause I know them uh, a little bit, um, probably did a great job um, just of, uh, of walking with you through that, that process. Mm-hmm. But so um, you have this unique vantage point, right. Um, of yeah. racial tension. And, yeah. uh, and so as things have unfolded, I, I've said to a couple of people that, um, you know, the George Floyd killing um, felt like um, a, a pattern that you just couldn't imagine was being repeated. Um, sure. And, and in, in my lifetime, anyway, I, I felt a little bit like, gosh, I, I've, I feel like we should have made more progress um, than this. How has it felt like as you've watched um, some of the racial tension in in your lifetime, how has that felt from being somebody from a, a biracial family? What, what's the unique perspective that you viewed um, this this whole thing unfolding? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so obviously you have the, you know, what we call systematic and more like structural issues with racism. And, you know, I didn't, I'm not a sociology professional, so I, I don't want to dive into Me that. Either, yeah. Just like the, the human side, um, and this is probably a byproduct of how most people see me, but I more often than not resonate with, I think, being black. And I don't want that to come out wrong because I absolutely appreciate and love my biracial identity. And you're correct that my parents did a great job in instilling that in me. But it's just when people look at me, I, I think they see me as a black guy. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so very rarely do people come up to me and they say like, oh, yeah, I would suspect you're mixed. It's, you know, I think you're black. Um, and so I guess knowing that, I've kind of uh, just recognized that. Maybe I look full black to people. And so when I think about all that's going on, 
the biggest thing that comes to mind is like how scary or how crappy, if that's okay to use, is yeah, it the yeah. fact that could be me um, or my brother or, you know, my own dad who's um, a middle-aged black guy like George Floyd is. And, uh, you know, as far as the, the perspective from a, a mixed person, it's, I don't know if I have one as far as assessing or, or being able to essentially like process the injustice, mm -hmm. but I think where I have a unique perspective is being a voice in the hallway of reconciliation. So you have blacks on one side, whites on the other. And again, I grew up in a home where <laughs> I had literally that same environment. Yeah. Black and white. And so it's, you know, it, it might sound corny, but like I almost, it's not that I don't see color, but I just race was never a huge deal in my house because we represented or excuse me, represented the two ones that are most fought over challenged in America. Right. And so I look at my upbringing as again, a potential platform to say, um, Hey, I can't speak for all black people. And I, I don't walk through every shoe, all the shoes of every black man. And Hey, I don't, speak for white America and I haven't walked through every shoe of all white America, mm. but I can say that I've grown up with both in a very tangible and intimate way. And so I've been able to be exposed to experience that only maybe a white perspective would have conversely a black perspective. And I think that perspective is what allows me to say, um, you know, here's point a, here's point C, let me be point B. Mm. Uh, that makes sense. It makes a ton of sense. And gosh, I, I appreciate that when I heard from uh, some of my black friends, the idea that they still have to worry when they get pulled over, um, this guy might just have a chip on his shoulder. And right. I, ne I never have to worry about that, Drew. Yeah. And, and it's, it's wrong that, that anybody has to worry about that. And I feel like um, that the church should be uh, an opportunity to move the ball down the field, not, you know, n not, I'm going to keep with the football and that, not punt, you know, and yeah. say that's somebody else's problem. So let me ask you this question. Um, as you have over your uh, adult life watched the church, um, where have you seen the church be helpful in terms yeah. of issues of race and justice? And, yeah. and where have you seen the church be not as helpful? Yeah, that's again, a good, a good question. My only, um, you know, I guess I'll preface my answer by saying I don't attend regularly every church in the country. And so I, I don't want to yeah. suggest that I'm sitting over here with my microscope and saying, I watched a YouTube clip on what some pastor said. He didn't say it right. That dude isn't, isn't hitting it on the head. Yeah. So I'll, I'll preface my response with, um, just I want people to understand my perspective is solely one, and I, I don't want to say it in a condemning in a condemning way. Understood. Um, so where I think the church is going well, you mentioned earlier. So I I went to Bridgeway Community Church in Columbia from the time I was like thirteen to call it nineteen twenty, mm -hmm. um, and then when Brooke and I got married, we wanted to you know have our own thing, and we started going to Mosaic uh, Christian Church mm -hmm. and Mosaics in Elkridge and um, Something that I think I've seen the church do well, and I, I can say this because both Bridgeway and Mosaic um, have been intentional about this, is by putting people of color in positions of influence. And 
you know, someone could look at, for example, a lead, call it a lead singer for the worship team. Um, when you are a church that serves two, 3,000 people or whatever in the Baltimore metro area, like, and you might have first time guests that are determining whether or not they come back based on that experience, being in a role where everyone sees you and everyone can see what you do and what you don't do. Mm-hmm. Um, that's important. And so when I see churches that allow not just black people, but, you know, Spanish or Asian or any other type of non-white um, skin color, I see that as a, a plus sign. Um, I've been a beneficiary of that myself at Mosaic. I was able to have a, a, a speaking role um, where, and a role on the finance team there where I felt like I was making a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, where I would say the church has gone wrong would just be, you said earlier, this idea of punting. Um, I would say that's probably where churches go wrong is mm-hmm. it's really, really easy to be passive. It's really, really easy to say that's a them issue. It's not our issue. Mm-hmm. It's really easy to plead ignorance and maybe say that, oh, well, that's, you know, that's just maybe one bad apple out of the 50,000. And uh, because it's so low statistically, we shouldn't exert all this energy over that. And specific to the George Floyd issue, I'm, I'm going to bring it back full circle is. Sure. This might be unpopular, but I don't think that the race issue starts and stops with police, if that makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. I don't walk down the street and say, every police officer that I see is a bad guy. My brother-in-law is a cop and he's a great guy. I think that it's a human issue and racism and ignorance doesn't start or stop or doesn't discriminate based on profession. Mm -hmm. And so it's in boardrooms, it's in schools, it's in uh, churches probably around the world somewhere. Law enforcement. And so the church is in a unique position where, you know, like my church, Everyone that goes there has usually some different type of representation, racially, socioeconomically, mm-hmm. professionally. And so what that did, what that does, it allows the church to become literally a mosaic, no pun intended, but literally a mosaic for differences mm-hmm. and allows us to peel off all the layers that society might like to label us and put on us and say, at the end of the day, we're all just the same broken people that are in need of a savior and it's not that you know we don't have too much different after all so Mm. and gosh that's well said drew and and i i have this idea that you know the church should be out in front um of the culture on on this issue and we um just admittedly haven't been um and so again as you said some churches um better than others i'm not passing judgment i'm just talking about us Yep. We we should be a lot farther uh, than we are, but but that's not something to focus on. Th- that is what it is, and so here we are. We're going to do now, and yeah. and so I feel like raising the awareness level of the importance of dialogue like this could be could be a starting point. You know, Mike Palmer, and yep. you know when we uh, hired Mike Palmer from a predominantly black church. Uh, to come and be a campus pastor with us, part of the the hope was that it would foster this kind of of dialogue. Yeah. So Mike and I are like, well, this is what we asked for, I guess, you know. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so here we go. I remember you saying uh, one time to me about walking in 
to Bridgeway and you said, it's, I'm a biracial couple and it doesn't even flag and it, it. Nobody even notices. Right. And, and what a cool thing uh, that is um, in yeah. terms of the body of Christ. So gosh, that's, that's certainly um, my hope. Um, what do you think um, the unique, role. I'm not asking you to do my job. I'm the pastor, right? Um, (laughs) But what do you think the unique role the church could play if it decided to get um, messy in terms of, of, uh, of this content? What do you think the role the church could play would be? Yeah. Yeah. So I wrestle with this because I used to get frustrated going to churches in Westminster where I felt like I walked into the auditorium and I was one of four black people out of 700. And I was like, this is really frustrating. Um, and then I was gently reminded by somebody that to an extent, a church can only represent so many different people. For example, if you live in a 100% town that's white, you can't expect that half your population is going to be black and Spanish. Tough to be diverse. Yeah, right. Sure. And it, I think as a minority, sometimes because you maybe have a little bit of a defense around you and you're a little more defensive, that mm. it's an easy thing to, to kind of pick apart. Mm. And so to answer your question, it, it depends. I mean, if you're a, if you're a church in Columbia, that's within 25 minutes of Baltimore, D.C., Montgomery County, then what's your excuse? Um, if you're a church in some part in the world where there's 99.9% white folk, I try really hard to go after that 0.01, but you know, they're limited. Yeah. And so my answer is it depends, but I think, I think the, the example that Jesus outlined is pretty straightforward. If you look at the Samaritan, Samaritan goods, excuse me, the good Samaritan story, or even the Samaritan woman. And if you look at the historical context of Jews and Samaritans, they hated each other, probably to the same extent that maybe some of black and white Americans I would like to hope way back in the day, but probably still today, mm-hmm. there could be some ignorance, hatred, and bigotry there. Jesus shattered that by being a Jew and just going head first, not only with a, a Samaritan, but a woman. And yeah. he had dialogue with her. And yeah. he didn't go up to her and say, let, you know, let me tell you what I can fix about you. Because those who don't know her story, she had a lot that could have been quote unquote fixed. And he went in and had a dialogue. And from there, you know, I don't need to preach the story, but from there, progress had been made. And so I would like to hope that if the church can kind of keep it simple, be intentional about the direction at which you travel and the people that you're targeting and the conversation that you're going to have, have intentionality there and understand that your heart should be one of love and empathy. And so don't approach people that are different than you and think I need to have this conversation so I can fix Mm -hmm. or so that I can tell you why your perspective is really just one of a few small ones and that we're not all like that. Like just go in open hearted and open minded and keep it simple. Hey, we both like sports. Like let's hang out and develop a genuine relationship. Like I think that's somewhat part of my issue with today and, and, um, just kind of this effort for reconciliation is like the effort is absolutely needed, but the gospel in of itself is simple. Like we are the ones that have overcomplicated. And so I don't, I don't mean to water down your question because yeah. I, 
I know it's a very, very big issue and it's, it's not something that we can solve in 30 minutes, yeah. but I just think, you know, if you look at the model of Jesus, he was an intentional, he went after people that didn't look like him, that were outcasts, that everyone else blew their mind over. And if we can just follow his approach to just, you know, just starting with going to them and being physically present yeah, and prayerfully ask the God to do the rest. I mean, I don't know if that, I would like to hope that that is better than what we were doing today. I, yeah. I Gosh, well said. You've probably heard somebody before say that people were, that were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus and yeah. Jesus liked people who were nothing like, like him. And it's about that simple. And yeah. uh, I, Gosh, I I do agree with you, Drew. That uh, the the personal relational piece has more power than almost every other step. If if yeah. if Christ followers uh, who were uh, from different cultures, whether it's white and black or, or whatever it is, um, right. would would have relationships, would make it personal. Um, gosh, uh, all so many things figure themselves out within that context of, yeah, that's just my friend. And right. I'm not, I'm not yeah. trying to change them into me and, or, or, or they trying to change me into them. But uh, yeah. and I, I think I, the underlying, um, I, I think it has to be in boldness though. Like we, myself included, love to go where it's comfortable. Sure. And so I can't sit, I can't sit there as a Christian and say, I want to actively participate and then cross my hands and wait for a black, uh, if I'm a white person, a black guy that talks like me, dresses like me, we have the same profession and we drive the same sports car. Right. Like it can't, it can't be that level of passivity. Like it needs to, again, intentionality and boldness where for me as a, a mixed black and white guy, this isn't true, but maybe I have a problem with Asian Americans. And not true. Yeah. Um, you know, so then maybe I go to my Asian American neighbor that exists and I simply say, Hey, this is really weird, but I'd love to get a coffee and a donut and bring it to you. And we can just hang out on the front porch and talk and get to know each other. It's really weird story. example, yeah. but you, you get my point. It's that I do. level of intentionality and boldness that I think um, that it really required to, to be ambassadors of change. Yeah. So. And, and I completely agree with you that um, it, it's, it's not in any way um, diminishing the, um, the broadest sense of the problem. It, it it's, certainly needs to be hit head on, but what makes it, in my opinion, and I, I think this is what you're saying too, Drew, is that what makes more difference than anything else is the action of one person. Exactly. And the action of the next person, and then the action yeah. of the next person. So I, I I see that in Jesus. You know, uh, it's funny that he, not funny. It's unique that he says he's completed his work at the yeah. end of three years, and he kind of poured into like twelve relationships, and and handed the thing off. And and you might have thought, well, that didn't make much difference at all. Well, it changed the world. And so yeah. I, I do think that there's a power in, in that um, one person doing what they can do. And so uh, I love what you said there. Hey, um, and one, one quick thing, because it, it just came to mind. I would also say, Christians, be gracious to your fellow believers or friends making an honest attempt. Like, yeah. don't minimize or criticize that 
maybe my my effort is only going up to my Starbucks barista and being genuine and nice and just telling them they matter or maybe it's not even that forced or awkward you just are overly nice and compassionate like don't don't minimize or mock that effort because as you were saying read like we can't just all be bystanders and wait for uncle sam to bring down change or our congressmen or congresswomen to be the only ones that 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 bring change like and so I just, I see it a little bit on the social media and I, I, there's just so much nitpicking and critiquing and it's like, why don't you, instead of doing that, encourage them and promote their effort and just say, Hey, that might not have seemed like a big deal, but that was one big step bigger than we were taking yesterday. And that's awesome. Yeah, um, absolutely. That. Celebrate that, right? Yeah. What gets celebrated gets repeated. And, yeah. and so um, I'm, I'm with you on that. Hey, we're, we're running out of time, but I wanted to give you a chance on all these uh, podcast episodes. I give my, my uh, guests a chance to ask me anything. And so, yeah. uh, so fire away, whatever you got. Yeah, this is so, I assume your listener, most of your listeners will know this, but Crossroads is Westminster, Hampstead, or Hampstead, Eldersburg. Yeah. And let's just focus on Westminster where you've had a presence there for what, 10, 15 years? Yeah, exactly. So um, I visited your church a few times, mm-hmm. right? And it's predominantly white church. Mm-hmm. So I'll just ask you very pointedly, what does Reed Robinette and team do to go after those in Westminster and surrounding neighborhoods that don't fit the current, uh, uh attendee profile yeah. um, that most of your church has? Great question, Drew. And, and I'll answer it in, in two ways. And you already, you already gave the first answer. Um, when you put people uh, of color or of a different culture of some uh, not the predominant uh, attender profile, as you just said, when you put um, someone in a position of, a, of authority and of recognition, that goes farther than anything that you can ever say, that mm-hmm. someone can walk in the building and look on stage and see someone that they think I'm like them. Um, and, uh, so in hiring um, Mike Palmer um, as a, a black pastor, um, we have hired Tito Matos uh, as a Hispanic pastor. And, and so we are trying to diversify the leadership and the people that you see in leadership positions um, at Crossroads. As you said, um, Westminster is not the most diverse place in the world, right. Um, right. but we want to model that to the extent that that we can. The, the second thing I would say in answer to that, though, is um, th- that sometimes there are cultural barriers that we should not um, make people cross before they can meet Jesus. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Like, so um, we uh, adopted this uh, community center um, in in Westminster uh, on Sullivan Avenue, mm-hmm. and um, we had this idea that it might be a, a small um, campus. But uh, but what we found was that the the whole population surrounding in four or five blocks in any, any direction of of this property is all Hispanic, um, mostly Central American. Um, uh, have have moved here. Very few of the adults uh, speak any English. The kids have learned because they're going 
to school. And so to ask them to come into our um, style of, of worship and even language right. barrier right. to meet Jesus seemed like a, a hurdle that's too high to ask someone to get over. So we wanted to, to make it very easy. Is that verse in, in Acts 15 that says, we should not make it difficult for those who are turning to God, right? right. And so, um, so what we did was started an after-school program and um, tutoring and, you know, um, some of the, the parents work shift work. And so the kids didn't have any place to go when they got off the school bus. And the, and the community center is actually the, the bus stop. You know, so it didn't take a rocket scientist to think, hey, we should just open the door and, and let the kids come in. And so now we're running um, what's our, you know, elementary school ministry for mm-hmm. kids after school in Spanish and in English. And then we're doing ESL classes and then we're doing a food pantry um, and so that they don't have to choose between paying rent and feeding, you know, their, right. their families. And in all of that, there's been more ministry <laughs> happening than we could have had a million church services the way we we do it. Right, right. And and they would not have gotten a picture of Jesus as clearly as they have just by being in their community and reducing the barriers for relationship to happen. So right. it's a small small step, you know, we're we're measuring progress in inches not miles. Sure. Um, but, but again, I, I think, uh, who am I to, uh, uh, assess the significance of right. one or two relationships there? I have no idea what the ripple effect is going to be in the kingdom of God Absolutely, you know, sure. going forward. So, yeah. um, you know, I, I have uh, shared with a lot of people that I have felt like a fish out of water, um, in, in terms of being, I grew up in Westminster, so that's might sound odd. Um, sure. But gosh, I love I I get all jazzed up um, when I'm around people um, with differences and different cultures and and so um, I'm pretty sure God still wants me here and so while I'm still here I'm going to try to make it as uh, as colorful as possible. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I said, the the it's not a small uh, small undertaking. So you got your hands full and thank thanks for the honest answer. Yeah, man. Well, thank you, Drew. I appreciate you coming on with me. And my prayer is that this conversation um, just helps somebody else to have uh, an honest, real conversation. So thanks for being with me tonight. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. See you later. Okay, man. Okay, man.